Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. At this point in our program, we go around the room and introduce ourselves by our first or first and last name. They are. My name is Roy. My name is David. I'm Marvin. My name is Oswaldo. <coughs> My name is Tom Bruin. Jack. Hazard. So now, I'm Sean from the Sigma Mother. I'm Jerry Jones. My name is Bob. I'm Richard Azzolini. Bob Michael. My name is Ray Dyer. Peter. Jim Winters. Jim Stewart. George. Baruch. Shen. My name is Tony. Orman. My name is Harley. I'm Lynn. My name is Tom Ryan. I'm Bob. <coughs> My name is Carl Wolf. I'm Peter. <coughs> Bruce. Marjorie. My name is Gary. My name is Michael. Tatuan. Welcome, once again. Our speaker this morning is Mushim Ikedem Nash. Did I pronounce that by Mushim? Yeah, <coughs> thank you. Mushim um, Ikedem Nash combines extensive grounding in contemplative and mindfulness practices, both in monastic and lay traditions with diversity facilitation and training. She teaches meditation retreats for people of color and social justice activists nationally. Mushim co-edited Making the Invisible Visible, Healing Racism in Our Buddhist Communities. She is a leadership Sangha member and core teacher at the East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland. Under the name of Patricia Ikeda, she is the first recipient of the Ragdale Foundation's Alice Hayes Fellowship for a writing project having to do with social justice issues and is working on a book-length collection of brief autobiographical fiction called Elegy with Blue Shirt, Tie, and Gun, and Other Stories. Mm -hmm. Welcome, Mishima. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so delighted to be here and uh, want to thank uh, Baruch for the original invitation and Jerry for the email and David for facilitating and really for all of you for um, showing up on a Sunday morning when it's so beautiful outside, of course it's beautiful inside as well, uh, to practice mindfulness and to walk the way of peace together. Uh, I think it just goes without saying how much this is needed and how much each of you have the capacity and uh, I know that you do take, uh, take the light that you gain in any kind of 
uh, peace and stability and harmony here out into the world with you. Uh, after this meeting and in the coming week and in the days ahead. So my heartfelt thanks to you for your practice, for your intention to practice, and for everything that you do to deepen that practice of mindfulness. I want to, uh, as, as I begin, acknowledge uh, the ongoing struggles for rights within the LGBTQI communities not just to survive, but in order to truly be able to thrive and achieve full well-being. So I know that these, these are struggles that undoubtedly you've all been involved in uh, probably throughout your lives and you've known many people who have as well. Uh, it's come before us, it's going on now, it probably will extend into into the future and um, just I just want to honor and bring to mind all of those we know who have who have participated in that ongoing work so uh, the title of my talk today are the uh, ABCs and I'm going to talk about this acronym that that is, I'll be talking about to use to work with what, as David was quoting from the Dalai Lama, those wild and unruly thoughts and emotions. And we'll be particularly talking about those wild and unruly thoughts. And uh, those of us, of course, who've been doing Dharma-based or Buddhist practice for a while or even immediately are very familiar with those wild and unruly thoughts. That's what our brain does. It produces thoughts. And, uh, and some of them are tamer than others, and some, if you're inside my brain, can be pretty wild and far out. <laughs> so uh, the ABCs of dealing with afflictive negative thoughts. You know, pleasant thoughts can have their own little pitfalls, but normally we just kind of can enjoy them, and then they go along. It's really afflictive negative thought. And by that I mean thoughts that uh, cause us to suffer on a long-term basis. And so the ABCs of dealing with these afflictive negative thoughts, and then my subtitle is What the Buddha Might Not Have Taught. So what the Buddha might not have taught explicitly that, although I feel that it's certainly embedded in the teachings and the wisdom that have come down to us, but which through modern, uh, you know, so many people, myself included, are really thrilled by what the modern neuroscience is coming up and just all the ways in which technology and science is able to confirm what people who have been doing these practices of training the mind have experienced for themselves, kind of anecdotally and collectively. We're now beginning to see some of that kind of quantified, and uh, we have new tools, or new forms of tools. So first I'll begin by acknowledging that many meditation practices in the various Buddhist traditions, and there is a lot of diversity, involve techniques for stilling the mind, and for centering and focusing uh, body and mind so that 
we have we begin to be just become more aware of what I'll call here mind chatter. Sometimes that's called discursive thinking, and basically it's again what the, His Holiness is saying: those wild and unruly thoughts, which. Uh, which can be uh, kind of just amazing in which the profusion of thinking that can, can arise. I know that there's some uh, sort of ancient Buddhist formulas about how many thoughts can arise within a single second even, or some tiny period of time, and it's a lot. It's really kind of a lot of thoughts. So that's, that's uh, usually what we all do is we, we think if we have some spare moments. So as we practice uh, this basic sitting meditation, some of us may do walking or movement meditation. The tradition in which I was trained, which is uh, Korean Zen Buddhism, really emphasizes the value of manual work, of simple tasks and repetitive tasks that don't require too much intellectual um, effort, uh, like gardening, and cooking and cleaning and uh, you know tasks like that things that we do with our hands and we're using our our bodies the value of those tasks also to be meditation for centering and for focusing so we have these practices and through them we become first aware more aware more conscious of the mind the chattering mind and becoming conscious of it, while it can be painful, it can be kind of amusing, it can be kind of boring, uh, is actually a good thing. Because with awareness, uh, awareness is always the first level, right, of our being able to make a little plan or to get some resources of how to manage, how to deal with. So it can become uh, kind of like becoming aware that the television is on, someone switched it on, and the radio is on, someone switched that on as well, and at the same time we're listening to something on headphones hooked up to our laptop or our iPod. And so when we become aware of that, then we can, uh, we can switch off the TV, we can turn off the radio, and then we can listen to the music that we want to listen to, or the talk we want to listen to with some intention and some purpose. So uh, that's part of the value of becoming aware of this mind chatter. Also, with the kinds of mindfulness meditation that I think probably most of us are doing, and certainly here within the tradition of the Buddha, uh, with, over time, discursive thoughts begin to settle down and have some tendency to kind of uh, drop away. So I read recently, I forget where, it was somewhere online, that one meditation teacher said to the people who had come to the retreat center to do a little bit of an extended retreat said, said, you may think that you are coming here to gain something. You're coming here to gain more peace. You're coming here to learn some meditative techniques. Maybe some of you are going for world peace or ultimate enlightenment. So you may think that you're coming here to gain something, but actually this place is a dumping ground. And what you're coming here to do is to let stuff drop off. 
and to leave it here and then when you go hopefully you'll be a little bit lighter. That certainly uh, accords with my own meditation experience. And when I think of sitting in meditation and that effect of some of, some of you know, not all, some of my thoughts beginning to settle down and kind of just, just kind of fall mm -hmm. away, uh, the image and sound I often have is that 20 years ago, when I was a single mother, I lived for a year at Green Gulch Farm Zen Center, which is one of San Francisco's Zen Centers, three practice centers over in Marin County. It's adjacent to Muir Beach. And I lived in uh, the back of this mobile home in a eucalyptus grove. And if any of you have been in a eucalyptus grove at night, uh, when it's kind of quieted, quieted down, you'll know that they have the amazing ability to shed bark constantly. They've got this bark that kind of sheds off, and it just sort of fall keeps falling off. Like you, especially if there's a little bit of wind, even if there's no wind, I'd be lying there, and I just could just hear pretty much all night long, and sometimes an owl would hoot for a little bit of variety, but there would just be this sound of uh, the eucalyptus trees uh, shedding their bark and their, their leaves. So, uh, so we can imagine, and I'm very always kind of relieved that this is not the case, that in the many meditation halls I've been in, and uh, certainly uh, here I am this morning, that uh, we come together and there's a kind of usually neatness and orderliness and uh, you kind of have your little space for meditation and then then the bell rings and in uh, we just had about half an hour where it's really been pretty quiet it's been pretty quiet which is nice, and we're, we're each doing our practice, and we're also practicing together. But you can imagine that if we had a little slip of paper for every thought that every one of us had had during this 30 minutes, so kind of like the slips that we get in fortune cookies, you know, at, at restaurants, if we had a little slip for every thought we've had, you can just visualize what this meditation hall would look like. Right? There'd be some, some, some heaps of stuff. Um, and, of course, you know, we could guess that some of these typical thoughts are like, my right knee hurts. Isn't it time to ring the bell? What, what will I have for lunch? Or other, other kinds of thoughts that are arising. So, um, as we continue to practice, uh, to use that eucalyptus tree metaphor, the bark just continues to keep shedding off, and, and sometimes there can be moments of deep uh, meditative concentration, or samadhi, or even longer states. There can, there can be many states that arise, and oftentimes I think it's true for many of us, myself included, that as we follow this practice, still something Remains after all that shedding goes, and uh, what remains can be very deeply rooted, often in our childhood, and because of the social conditions to which we are um, subject, 
They're often deeply rooted, afflictive thoughts, negative thoughts. So it is sometimes said that kind of in a nutshell, we can say that um, negative thinking that arises and which repeats over and over and over has this kind of looping quality. The Buddhist uh, term for this is sometimes samsara, and some of you may know it, where you just kind of keep going round and round and it's just deja vu all over again with the same suffering, the same thought, just on and on and on. So that's also sometimes called ruminative thinking. So this, this uncontrollable, repetitive, negative thinking, and that we say if it's about the past, if these thoughts are about the past, we can call this uh, mind state depression. If it's centered around the future, we could call it anxiety, kind of in, in a nutshell. And often, no matter how many years uh, people sit or, or really diligently do practices, uh, certainly these can be of great help, but often something kind of remains. There are, the, there are these things that are pretty hard to, to dissolve. So the Buddha was very clear on the subject of, of thinking and how the mind produces uh, this kind of thinking. And in the very earliest teachings that have come down to us that were written down, of course there are various translations. The one that my original Zen teacher recommended is by Thomas Byram. And it's a very uh, kind of poetic contemporary translation. So I'm going to read you two translations of this passage from the Dhammapada, which uh, are the teachings of, original teachings of the Buddha that have come down to us. And it's from the very first chapter, uh, which in this translation is titled Choices. We are what we think. So we've heard we are what we eat. And, uh, and even more fundamentally, we are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. So we are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. There's a more recent uh, and a little more scholarly translation, wonderful one by Gil Fransdahl, who teaches in Redwood City. And he titled uh, this chapter one, Dichotomies, which is interesting, choices and dichotomies. And in his translation, he says, all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. So I want to be clear at this point that we're not talking about uh, this in some kind of simplistic manner where we can just say, well, I have power over my thoughts and therefore um, if I have this uh, persistent afflictive thought of 
I'm just going, I'm, I'm a loser. I'm just sort of this loser person that I'm going to be able to just X that out and replace it and go around thinking, I'm a winner, I'm a winner, I'm a winner, and have my life change. I have one mentee who has told me, you know, well, I tried that affirmation stuff and it just didn't work. The trick about affirmations is they've got to be realistic. They've got to work with what we have uh, to work with. And they have to be real and they have to uh, be encouraging to ourselves. So in fact, most of us are really smart people. Our brains are too smart for simplistic, magical formulas. And uh, besides which, Thoughts like, I'm, I'm a winner, I'm a winner, is basically unrealistic because who wins all the time? And when we look at the toll of ruthless competition, who wants to win all the time? If there's a winner, there probably is a loser. For most of us who've lived a while, you know, could be one or the other. Sometimes a little bit of both. So we can use our practice of mindfulness. If we, some of us do practices that really kind of, and I, I was trained in the lineages that really just go for the ultimate. And Zen is very good at kind of that ultimate thing. And there's a lot about emptiness and non-ego and, and so forth. And that's, that's good because we need to have that. Uh, there, is, there is a goal and there is spiritual awakening. We can also use, in the immediate sense, our practice of mindfulness to become aware that there might be some fairly simple and actually very painful thoughts that are hovering below our sophisticated thinking. So it takes some, a little bit of honesty, but we can do this privately. We don't have to tell anybody about what those thoughts and uh, deep beliefs actually are that might be limiting us or um, really creating a lot of suffering in our lives. And often thoughts, as you've no doubt observed, tend to spawn other thoughts. It's just kind of amazing, and this can go very quickly. It's like, it's like you get on this thought train, and, and it's really the bullet train. I've never been to Japan, but I'm kind of intrigued by this bullet train. It's extremely fast. So it may be alarmingly easy to go from uh, walking down the street and thinking, oh my God, that's my ex standing at the corner, to the thought that was the worst breakup of my life, and then suddenly zooming all the way to, what if he was the love of my life and nothing will ever be as good, to the end of the line, which is the root thought, which is, I'm unlovable, I knew it. And that's, you know, that's going to be that basic level thought. Often that we don't really want to admit to ourselves, or because it's embarrassing, or and it's painful, or certainly to tell other people. But uh, mindfulness can actually help us to get uh, to these uh, persistent, afflictive, negative thoughts, and to hold them with some equanimity, because after <coughs> all, they are human thoughts. We're not the only one who has ever thought or believed this. And once we become aware of it, then we can start working with it in a number of ways. And usually these thoughts, sometimes these thoughts are, are unconscious. Until someone challenges them and until we learn to actually challenge them, we may not even know they're there. I'll give you an example. 
I'm a writer, and I was originally trained as a poet. And um, unless you're very strange and you know a lot of very rich poets, there aren't, you know, it's really unusual to get paid. Writing a poem takes a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of study often. Not, very few people get paid for writing poems. These days, journalists don't even get paid because everything's on the net. Journalism is going through a real crisis financially in its structure. So I was talking to my friend, uh, Katriona Reed, who is also a writer and who is a teacher at Manzanita Village in Southern California, where I sometimes teach. And we were talking about writing, and I just said something that seemed completely clear and truthful to me. And I said, no one ever gets paid for writing. And Katriona immediately said, that's wrong. Some people get rich from writing a book like Chicken Soup for the Soul. And I thought, and I actually said, thank you, you're right. What I said was inaccurate. That was completely, no one ever gets paid for writing. And as we become more skilled at looking at our thoughts, the words ever, never, always are usually red flags for understanding that this is a thought that is not, um, uh, that, that could use a little bit of healthy challenging. It probably just isn't, it probably isn't true in a, in a basic way. So it's very true that many people write things and try to sell them and don't get paid, but that's, that's far from uh, what is actually true. Some people do get rich from writing, some people get paid a little bit. Um, even me, I've actually had people offer me money for my writing and I think it's kind of a miracle. So, uh, but it does happen. So I myself, uh, what, what is the nature of these wild and unruly, these persistent, negative, afflictive thoughts and emotions? We can begin to notice about ourselves that we might be more prone to certain kinds of negative thoughts and emotions than, than others. So for instance, for whatever reason, fortunately for me, I'm not really that prone to being depressed. Um, I have had periods of depression in my life, like everyone, but it's not really my tendency. However, culturally and in terms of personality, I'm very prone to anxiety or those persistent negative thoughts about the future. And this is what I've, I begin to call in my mind my chicken little mode. So you all know the story of Chicken Little, right? Like the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And I'll just kind of can quickly work myself up into a lather of fearful thoughts about the future, this anxiety where um, before I know it, I literally am kind of just running around, screaming in one way or another, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Some people are more prone to certain kinds of emotions than others. So um, I know, I think there's a Harley here, right? I have an old friend named Harley who's a different person, who's uh, an artist and I've known him for, I don't even know how many years. I babysat his kids and, and they're grown up and have children themselves now. And, but years ago, he noticed he was very, he's not a meditator, he noticed he was very prone to a lot of angry thinking. And this was, 
after he'd had a triple bypass. So it was really incumbent on him to try to manage his health and, and to be a little calmer. And I was talking to him on the phone, and he said, you know what? I've really noticed I'm, I'm just kind of enraged all the time, and I'm going to, I've, I've decided I'm going to give it up because, after all, I don't really want to become known as the queen of spleen. So... Uh, I thought that was a very good good vow, and I kind of took it myself. So we're going to now take a page from the book of, some of you may be familiar with uh, what is now being called mindfulness-based CBT, or cognitive behavioral therapy. The mindfulness base of this form of working with our thoughts is Vipassana, or insight meditation. And this is being taught now in the mainstream medical model. It's being taught to kids in school rooms. It's being, uh, it's available on CDs and on the internet. It's just amazing to me, uh, having especially been trained in, in Zen, that and now exposed to Vipassana or insight meditation, how in a secularized form, uh, devoid of course in the schools and, and so forth, uh, it's um, it's not about spreading any particular religion, so it's been stripped of all of the teachings or overt teachings of Buddhism, and it really doesn't actually. It's not it's not um, limited to Buddhism, but the basic awareness of sensations in the body, the sensations of the breath, becoming aware that thoughts are arising that feelings are arising, and they may be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Then emotions arise, anger, fear, joy, so forth, uh, and that they come and go, they arise, they pass away. All of this basic knowledge and practice is now going out into our society and uh, distributing itself for... Uh, I, I really feel the benefit of so many different people. And it's been a very useful practice for me to lear learn, even after many years of Zen meditation, which emphasizes uh, this kind of ultimate stilling, the dropping away of body and mind, that if, try as I might, something doesn't drop away and it continues to bug me, that there is a way to work with it. So, the acronym that I was taught, that I found to be very useful, and that I've given to a number of extremely senior meditators who say, wow, that's really great, I can work with that, is A-B-C. And what this is, that is first we use our mindfulness practice to catch that and identify that persistent negative thought. That's what's called a core uh, belief. It's a core thought that underlies much of uh, how, we're, how we're living, often at a very unconscious level. So we can use our mindfulness practice to identify that. So I just gave you examples. One of my uh, deep thoughts that I didn't know I had was, no one ever gets paid for writing which would lead for me to think, well, and as a writer, I'm never going to be able to earn any money by writing. 
That's been actually untrue. I haven't been able to earn a full-time living by writing, but I've, I've earned some money by writing. And I've uh, and the writing I've done has been enjoyable for me and has led to other enjoyable projects in the Dharma. I've written about, I've written poetry, I've written um, things about diversity, and that have led me to meet wonderful people like yourselves and have opened other doors for me. So I've gained a lot through my, my writing. And yet, this was really pretty recently that Catriona said, you're wrong on that, I'm going to challenge you. I, that's still under there, that, that surfaced for me. Or for some people, I am unlovable. That's a very painful thought. I am not as good as, for those of us who are in groups that are historically targeted for oppression, that, that, that negative message that we get is, can be very, very afflictive at a, at a deep level. Uh, for some people, it's I'm not as as smart as. Uh, I know at least one person who has a PhD from an Ivy League who happened to be the youngest uh, sibling in a family and who I think, hopefully not to this day, but for many years, really had just a persistent thought of, gee, I may not be as smart as other people because somewhere inside there was this this kind of very small child who had received a message at one point or another. So, A, B, C, what is this? Once we've caught that thought, we can ask ourselves and challenge it. Is that thought accurate? That's the A. Is it balanced? That's the B. And is it complete? And that's our C. So, that's our formula. Accurate, balanced, complete. I've been working with the ABC for a while now and I'm just amazed. In fact, I was doing what I like to do little, what I call little thought experiments. And I am a writer, so I often play with words because thoughts arrive in words. They're formulated in language. And I was walking, I took the BART here and I was walking to the BART uh, and then taking the BART and getting off the BART. And I was doing this little thought experiment and I was thinking, okay, as soon as I identify a thought, I'm going to ask myself, is that thought accurate? I mean, I pretty much know that any thought I think isn't complete because there's a big reality out there and I'm just unknowing of most of it. So I don't even think too much about complete in that overall thought. But I thought, is it even accurate? And the more I could actually identify any thought I had walking to the BART, it already was uh, pretty much somewhat inaccurate unless it stayed at a level of very bare attention and at the level of my acknowledging, well, that's my perception. Uh, that's kind of what I'm seeing. Uh, this is what I'm hearing. This is what I'm noticing. So I had to admit that, uh, that once again, even though I, I have the persistent delusion that I'm walking along in, and, and kind of seeing what's there and relating to things, and, and I am in, in, in some way, that, um, that the world that I'm living in is created a lot more with my thoughts than I might even realize at any point. My kid just got back last night. He went to see Inception, the movie that just came out, and he was telling me all about it. And I said, so would you say that's kind of like the thinking person's matrix? And he said, 
Yeah, that's a pretty good description of it. So, uh, again, out in the popular culture and in film, in literature, uh, we see that acknowledgement that with our thoughts we make the world. So if we're going to make the world with our thoughts, hey, wouldn't it be good to have thoughts that are accurate, more accurate, more balanced, and more complete? What do we mean by this? Are our thoughts accurate means does this thought accord with facts as I know them? So we become more like scientists. We look at the facts. Do the facts substantiate this particular thought? Is there more information I might need to gather? People we know with a lot of equanimity probably are very talented in this particular part uh, aspect of being able to work with their thoughts. They're kind of calm because they might have a thought and then they know, hmm, I wonder if this is accurate. Is it based on fact? Do I have enough facts? So uh, just being able to take that step back and look at the thought in terms of accuracy is, is a great first step. We can then ask particularly if the thought has a lot of emotional energy to it. Is this thought balanced? So, um, again, for most of us who've had life experience, which I think is everyone here, you know as we get older, almost everything has pros and cons. It's got some good things, it's got some bad things, it's got neutral things. It all comes as a package. There's very little that, that would seem to be in some kind of like pure form. Uh, because that's the way reality is. It's all co-arises and it's complex and there are all kinds of threads in that fabric. So we can ask ourselves, is this thought a balanced thought? Is it a balanced thought? So perhaps if I'm very angry with someone, uh, I might think a thought, well, you know, that's just like a lazy, stupid, good-for-nothing person. It feels pretty accurate to me because it, it's even, you know, it's really fulfilling, right? I, I'm getting some energy out of it. I'm, I'm actually enjoying thinking that thought. And if I want to be fair, we can also say, is it fair? Is, it, is that a balanced thought? No, not particularly balanced. Have to, have to admit it if I'm being honest. It's actually not a very balanced thought. So I might want to take a moment and rebalance that thought. Well, you know, I'm, I'm really angry at so-and-so because of such and such that they did, and uh, this is a judgment. Uh, are they stupid all the time? No. Are they lazy all the time? No, actually, they're actually pretty hardworking a lot of the time. Uh, they screw up just like everyone else, and sometimes things get, get undone. But I've seen this person work pretty hard, uh, so I'm going to balance out that thought. And that, of course, leads to, is this thought complete, the C of our ABC? And here's where, for myself, I've no, noticed that when I formulate and change my thought to make it more complete, acknowledging more of the reality that's there, when I calm down a little, this is when it's so hard for me because I have to make a sacrifice. And the sacrifice that I often need to make at that is it complete stage is I have to sacrifice a little my own drama. And I'm the 
here. I love my drama. I love my stories. I just, I love them. I just love my stories. You know, some of them are kind of sad and wonderfully poignant. Others are pretty funny. Uh, others are like deeply intellectual and really interesting. Uh, and there's, there's, I, you know, there's just a lot of drama. My original Buddhist teacher in the Zen Buddhist Temple in Ann Arbor, Michigan, said, "Buddhists don't need television." And <laughs> 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 never was it true or thought said. I never, I don't watch TV. I actually do not watch TV. You can come to my house. There's a TV, and I watch DVDs. Uh, but uh, it doesn't even work since it's all been switched to digital. I tried it the other day. Uh, it did not work. Because so, I don't need it. Uh, just, there's plenty of, plenty of daytime drama. So, uh, I hope that this will be a kind of a good tool for you and that uh, if you don't reach ultimate enlightenment immediately, uh, when you sit down to meditate, and if thoughts, some thoughts really keep coming back that don't just soften and drop away, that you might just give it a, this a try, even in a very playful, lighthearted manner. That once you identify that thought, just ask yourself. You can even do it privately. Is this thought accurate? If it isn't, make it more accurate. Is this thought balanced? If not, balance it out even a little bit. Is this thought complete? If it's incomplete, make it a little more complete and say that thought back to yourself. So once again, this is not about changing our thoughts in a way that's magical, that's unrealistic, that goes to some kind of perfect realm. In fact, we could even call it the art of simply entering our own reality more fully. There's an ancient Buddhist text and I always get a chuckle when I think about the translation of the title into English. It's called, it's one of the Buddhist sutras, and it's called Entry into the Realm of Reality. Entry into the Realm of Reality. So you notice that, uh, that it's not saying entry into the realm of magical otherness or entry into the realm of perfect great enlightenment. It's entry into the realm of reality at many levels, we might add. But there is part of that level which is our everyday reality and that we do need to deal with and that is where our suffering, our joy, our love, our relationships, our connection, our physical pains and all of and our ability to make a living, uh, what's going on in our society where all of this is going on. So why not use our mindfulness practice to deal with that? We can be able to, uh, we have the ability, like the Buddha, who's here in the earth witness mudra position with that right hand drape, draping down. That's the position of being able to touch the earth. And the earth is the ground. It's our own ground of our own ability to be in reality. And we all have that ability. So I'd like to thank you very much. And there, and I'd like to ask our facilitator, according to my clock, we might have a few minutes. For we do you. have a few minutes for questions. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I'm curious about your poetry. I'm wondering if you can recite any. 
I am too old for that. <laughs> you know, uh, it's like it's like the spoken word poets and everyone, they can just do that. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, although I should be able to remember some lines, right? Let me think of, let me see if I can. Um, uh, my poetry, thank you for asking, is written under my, one of my, right, my original secular name, Patricia Ikeda, I-K-E-D-A. If you're interested, you can Google me. Uh, and um, uh, my poetry is often about um, my family. It's kind of it's kind of interesting. I didn't really start intend to start out doing that, but I was actually trained uh, in uh, my undergraduate work is at Oberlin College in Ohio, and I was trained at that time to really do a very um, a kind of poetry that worked with a lot of concrete imagery, and we were trained to write about what we knew uh, and to ground ourselves in. In, uh, in really what we knew rather than just writing about a bunch of stuff we didn't know about. And, you know, what I knew was my, was my family. Hell, I was a kid from Ohio uh, when I went to college. So that, that's what I knew. And as I began to write my poems about my grandma and my grandpa and my mother and father, uh, I learned more about who I am and a lot about nature, of course. And then, as I went on to gain spiritual experience, I have written some poems about uh, Buddhist and Zen experience, both in the United States and in South Korea, which is the country of my particular lineage. Uh, do you write in English or in Korean also? No, no. Um, I learned a little bit of Korean when I was there, and it was full immersion. So, uh, by the time I left, I was there for eight months. Actually, it was pretty fast. Within the temple, the, the vocabulary is a little more limited. So, I could babble at maybe a three-year-old level, which is pretty good for functional life, but absolutely no good for understanding anything intellectual. <laughs> so, I am an expert at sitting through... Uh, Dharma talks that I ha I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> you just sit and meditate. It's it's, it's easy. <laughs> so thank you for asking. I love poetry. I've got a question for she. Yes, David. When I do my ABCs, yeah, um, and I'm a Vipassana practitioner. Um, I can sometimes just get overwhelmed with my own level of delusion. I start seeing how inaccurate and unbalanced. And incomplete. And incomplete <laughs> some of my thoughts and, and opinions are. Mm -hmm. And on one hand, I realize, oh, well, that's great. You know, I'm getting closer to, you know, the nature of reality, not my reality. And it also feels like I've just had the rug pulled out from underneath my feet sometimes. Yeah. You know, any comment on that syndrome? What's your reaction to the experience of having Well, that? two different things. One is I kind of feel like I'm getting closer to the nature of things, and that feels kind of good. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, my reality is being um, 
washed away, kind of like when you stand on a beach and let the waves, you know, come at you and the sand disappears from underneath your feet. Caving out, yeah. You know, that's, you know, my my delusional reality is kind of seeping away, and, and I'm not quite comfortable with that space before um, accepting that this is the way things are. You know, it's like losing my delusional reality. It's a little scary sometimes. It's really scary for me. I'll just go ahead and admit it. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, as we enter the realm of our own reality, there can be what I'm hearing from you, uh, kind of a pleasant, joyful experience of, hey, I'm getting down to the bottom of this. And also there's that, I mean, I'll just say it for me, it's terror. It's There's some real anxiety there because, of course, we base our lives on our routines and our habits of mind, and why not? We need that. Uh, as my brother, who's a neuroscientist, said, if we woke up in the morning and uh, weren't able to kind of rely on certain habits of mind and, and routines and selective attention, we wouldn't even be able to get out of bed. It would just be, it would be overwhelming. So we can affirm that for ourselves, that we do need to be able to cling to some little things, because that's, that's functional. But the virtue of being able then to be safe in a meditation posture that's kind of where we're not going to be run over by a car or washed away by a giant beach. That's why we want to meditate in a place that's safe and quiet and controlled enough is then that we allow ourselves to the extent that we can manage the anxiety to go with that and to just feel that sand caving away, to feel that rug pulled out from underneath of us and, and to do a little bit of free-falling and then see what happens. So what can sustain me for that experience is to raise that inquiring mind, to raise that quality of intelligent curiosity that says, well, this is terrifying, but I wonder what's at the bottom. And to become an adventurer in my own life. I love adventures. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you, and I see that we've come to uh, the end of the time for the talk, so thank you so much for your kind attention and for the invitation to to be here. Mushim, if, if you'd be willing to hang out during our social hour out in the other room, people might want to introduce themselves and ask you a few more questions. I'm happy to do that, and I saw there were cookies. <laughs> <laughs> the cookies are there. <laughs> So, are there um, announcements this morning? Gary? Hi. I'm Ashim. Thank you again for coming and speaking. It's great. Enjoy it very much. And next week, there is no Sangha because the San Francisco Buddhist Center, which we meet in, is having some ceremonies. So, remember, next week we will not be meeting. And in the following week, which will be August 1st, I believe, we'll have an open discussion. Uh, there are registration forms out on the table for our annual retreat. It's happening September 17th through the 19th at Vajrapani Institute. And uh, I always struggle with sort of right marketing, right promotion. Things. <laughs> so I've been thinking about it, and what I'm going to do over the next uh, weeks is ask for some testimonials from people who have actually attended the retreat. So Roy is going to say a little something. Yeah, I, um, I've had the privilege of going to the last two retreats, and um, 
They really were beautiful experiences. Uh, the, the setting is wonderful. It's in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Uh, the food was great. Um, I didn't miss meat at all. And they even had coffee, which was, you know, was wonderful. Um, and the thing that I love the most about it is that the interactions that, that I was able to have with the, the different members of, of the Sangha outside of the Sunday, I mean, we get together, some of us go you know, have a bite to eat afterwards, but to be together in a place for a full weekend and really get to, you know, really chat with people and hang out with them uh, in, in the appropriate times when we're not in, you know, quiet meditation was really enriching. And I think if you get a chance and if you have that weekend free, it's really worth going. I mean, I, I can't wait. And I must say, Michael, you do a beautiful job of putting this retreat together. And thank you very much for that. Amen. Thanks. Yeah. Um, in two weeks from this weekend, um, the San Francisco Choral Society is doing a uh, really a wonderful program of um, Beethoven and Benjamin Britten. Uh, Tom Morrissey and Bill Childs and I all sing in, uh, in the in that course, and we've um, and and Beethoven's rich middle period. He, uh, when he realized he could still compose after having going deaf and getting tinnitus, he came up with uh, just a staggering number of masterpieces. And he had one concert where he uh, gave uh, premieres of the Fifth Symphony, the Sixth Symphony, the Fourth Piano Concerto, the Mass in C, and then he threw in this this. Uh, Choral Fantasia, since he had the piano there and the chorus there, and and the theme of it is an earlier iteration of what he later used as the Ode to Joy in the Ninth Symphony. So it's very interesting to see this very famous uh, melody in an earlier incarnation. So uh, I highly recommend the package. And the Benjamin Britten is based on a poem written by a uh, mystic in an insane asylum who just sees the divine everywhere. And it's, yesterday at the rehearsal, I almost totally lost it. It's just it's so gorgeous. Um, Anyway, so it's next uh, in two weeks, Saturday and Sunday afternoon at four at Calvary Presbyterian on Fillmore. I'll do a I'll do a blurb on the listserv, but you could do worse things with your time. Indeed. Another thing you can do with your time, if you have any interest, is once a month when I facilitate, I volunteer to hang out in this room during a social hour. If anyone wants to talk about their meditation practice, or share practices, or get instructions, or anything that's kind of practice related, um, feel free to hang out with me. Otherwise, we'll be doing a social hour in the next room. Uh, but first, we will gather in a circle and do our closing, and Machine is going to lead us in dedicating there. Within, we can see that within us uh, is contained our ancestors, both physical and spiritual. And we can see that within us we also contain our descendants, biological, adoptive, and descendants of the heart, our mentees and those we have helped who are younger than we are. 
So if there's any good thing that we have done here today, let's instantly dedicate the merit to our ancestors and our descendants for the good of the many, for the benefit of the many, for their well-being, their happiness. May they all have peace and the causes of peace. May they be relieved of suffering and the causes of suffering. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.